Okay, so we are going to start with an argument for the existence of God. You notice I, I call this prove it. Proof is a funny word. There are certain things that we can prove with 100% certainty. But those things are very, very few. In philosophy, there was a guy named Descartes. Anybody ever heard of Descartes, Rene Descartes? No? You may have heard this statement, though. And the first time I heard this statement, I thought this was the dumbest statement I had ever heard. I think, therefore I am. This was his profound conclusion. And the first time I heard that, I said, that has to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Do we really need a formula to prove our own existence? But what he was after is this. He wanted to come up with indubitable truth. Truth that can't be doubted. So what he started doing is doubting everything that he could doubt. And he came to the point where he realized, you know what I can't doubt? I can't doubt that I'm doubting. And if I'm doubting, then I'm thinking. If I'm thinking, I'm a thinker. If I'm a thinker, I am. I think, therefore, I am. There, therefore, is at least that indubitable truth. I am told that certain abstract mathematical concepts are also provable to 100%. I'm not sure if what else is? When you get up every morning, you get up based on probabilities and live your life. I mean, you don't know if you're going to die tomorrow. You don't know if, you, if, if they may not bring us lunch, and then we're going to have to replan everything. You know, everything is based on probabilities. The existence of God is the closest, this, this argument here is the closest I have seen to irrefutable proof. Now, by the way, none of this stuff is mine. I've just put it into a formula that's mine. I've taken stuff from everybody. Some of this stuff is as old as Socrates himself. They were trying to figure that out even before Socrates. Thales in 585 BC was really probably the beginning of Western philosophy. So these questions have been bouncing around for a long time. Then you have people like Augustine in the 4th century and Aquinas in the 13th century that really put some meat onto these arguments. This argument, I don't think you can refute without violating the fundamental laws of logic. The next argument, which will take much longer, it'll take most of the class, is going to be proving how you know that your God is the God. So this one is the existence of God. We're going to prove that God exists. And then we have to figure out if that God that exists is the God of the Bible. It's a much more detailed argument. And then, of course, if you have any questions, I think on the little handout it said something about you know, the problem of evil and what happens to those who've never heard, those kinds of questions. We can, we can deal with those in the end if you all want to. All right, so there are only three ways to explain the existence of any entity. You will notice that this first premise starts with three, not with one. It wasn't because the first part of this paper, uh, your handout, is, you know, is truncated, so you're not getting that. It's because it's a mnemonic. It's a three-part argument. We start with three, we go to four, then we go to five. We do that on purpose because there are things in the argument that correlate with that number. So I say there are only three ways to explain the existence of any entity. So premise one is actually premise three. So you can remember three things to explain the existence of any entity. So in the end of this, the existence of God argument should, should be to you synonymous with the three, four, five argument. Because when you're in a conversation with someone, 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this, and, and the more you love that person, the more you care about that person, the closer they are to you, the more exasperated you can get. And when you get exasperated, sometimes it's hard to think clearly. And so if you want to be able, you ever, you ever have those conversations, then you come back later and go, man, I wish I would have said that. It's for this reason that we set this argument up this way. These are little mental hooks that allow you to remember this argument. The guy that you're talking to says, there is no God. You go, three, four, five. What was three? Oh, yeah, three. There are only three ways to explain the existence of any entity. And then we're going to go to four. If you start with thing four, and then you have to go through causality to figure out what caused thing four. You go to five. We're going to talk about the general theory of relativity and how it's been proven accurate to five decimal points. And so once you learn the arguments and you get into the a heated conversation, it's easy to come back to the arguments based on this mnemonic. And unfortunately, the, the, second, the second lesson we'll be doing is much longer, and I don't have those mnemonics. Uh, someday, hopefully, I'll revise it down to something a little more succinct. But here we are. There are only three ways to explain the existence of any entity. The thing was created by something else. It created itself. Or it has always existed. Now, one of these is fundamentally flawed, philosophically impossible. Which one would that be? One, two, three. Okay, you said one was created by something else? Yeah, because if it was created by something else, that other, that other thing would be God. So you're already going, you're way ahead of us. you got to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about God. I'm talking about you. You had parents. Your parents had parents. Y'all were all created by something else, right? So there are three ways to explain the existence of any entity. Oh, anything. And, I've actually yes. the existence of God. And what I heard was right. Number two. In order for something to create itself, it would have to exist before it existed, right? It's a direct violation of the law of non-contradiction. Now, if that's hard for you to remember, remember a contradiction. It's a law. It says that A cannot be non-A at the same time and in the same way. So, kin cannot be non-kin at the same time and the same way. I can be a father, and I can be a husband, and I can be a son. But I can't be a father to my father. This chair, whatever we say this chair is, it's a chair. It cannot be a non-chair at the same time and in the same way. Now, we could use it as a, as a ladder by standing on it, but then it's a chair, it's, it's a ladder, but in a different way because it's still a chair. This is the law of con- non-contradiction. It is the fundamental principle of logic. So I took so long to explain it. If you violate the law of non-contradiction, you actually affirm it. The law of non-contradiction says that there are opposing truths, and those truths are in contradiction. And if you say... There is no law of non-contradiction. What you've done is offer an opposing truth to the law of non-contradiction and thereby affirmed that law. So there's no way around it. It is, it is what we call a fundamental law of logic. It is the most basic way we reason. I know that I'm not you because of the law of non-contradiction. Because I know that I'm me. There are two entities here, at least, and I'm one of them, but I'm here and you're there. So that's the law of non-contradiction in an expanded way. When I speak, the words coming out of my mouth are different from one another so that they make sense. But because they're different from one another, the law of non-contradiction has to be true. Otherwise, every single thing I say would have the exact same meaning and therefore no meaning. 
You're gonna, we use it all the time. We use it every day. We use it everywhere we go. We just don't think of it that way. We don't think of it as the law of non-contradiction. But when you go to put your, your right shoe on, the left foot, that's the law of non-contradiction. So the reason I bring up, you might ask yourself, why would you even say there are three ways if this one is impossible? And the reason is, in order to get out of there being a god, in order to explain life from non-life, which is called abiogenesis, you have to believe that something can create itself. Now, Louis Pasteur, y'all remember learning about him in science class in junior high? He, he did the experiment with the meat, and you know this one was open, this one was closed, the one that was open developed maggots and then flies and proved that spontaneous generation is false. The one that was closed developed no meat, no maggots, no flies. I wouldn't advise eating it, but it wasn't something that was just spontaneously creating flies. Spontaneous generation was dead. It was dead long before that. Louis Pasteur has proved it. Well, what we've done is we've revised it in, 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 in atheistic thought. If we give enough time to something, it can create itself. So it's not spontaneous generation it's slow gradual spontaneous generation something this is important would have to exist in order to create itself if nothing exists nothing will ever exist this chair cannot create itself I cannot create myself nothing in the universe can create itself in order to create yourself you would have to be before you were You'd have to exist and not exist at the same time, then bring yourself out of a state of non-existence into existence, and to do that, you'd have to exist. So, so what you get is, that's no good. So the question now, there are only two logically plausible ways to explain the existence of any entity. We're on already to premise two, which is, in our case, premise four. See how easy that was? We're already, we're already halfway done to proving God. Now, by the way, the handout that you have on the existence of God is very thorough. Um, if you're talking to someone who's intellectually gifted, they've been studying in college biochemistry or something along those lines, their arguments will be anticipated in the footnotes and in the endnotes. The argument I'm going to offer is really simple. It's really simple. It's easy to get your mind around. It basically deals with the law of non-contradiction, the law of causality, which flows out of the law of non-contradiction and does a little science. Given what we know from philosophy, we move into what Einstein has taught us through the theory of general relativity. And we can, which is, by the way, really good because most of the, the general arbiter of truth today for most people is science. So when a Christian offers science, they're astounded. Oh my gosh, I, I thought you were going to quote the Bible at me. But when you, when you step over into their field and you start quoting science to them, they can't reject it. It's their truth. And it's also our truth, because Augustine said all truth is God's truth. All right, so now if thing four was created by thing three, and thing three was created by thing two, and thing two was created by thing one, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, where did thing one come from? And that's your question. Right. Let's just say if thing two is the first created thing, then thing one necessarily has to be uncreated 
right? Because if thing one was created, then we have to posit a thing zero. And then we have to figure out how thing zero got here. And we have to posit a thing negative one. And you get yourself into what is called an infinite regress. You ever heard the term before, infinite regress? No? One? Okay. An infinite regress is saying infinity backwards. So I can go an infinite series of events in the past. That's an infinite regress. If this thing needs a creator, then the creator for that thing is going to need a creator, and the creator for that is going to need a creator. And where does it end? Well, it doesn't end if it's an infinite regress. And if it never has an ending point moving backwards, then it never gets started. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? If it can't get started, you can't get here. Now, this is not a Christian argument. This is, this is basic philosophy. It's, it's, it's known. It's also something else interesting. It's circular. It's viciously circular. You all heard that's a circular argument probably. Well, this is a viciously circular argument. You're saying that this is the kind of entity that needs a creator, but he was created by another kind of entity that needs a creator. And he was created by another kind of ent entity which needs a creator. So what you're doing is you're actually assuming your own premise in your conclusion. You're assuming that you have an entity to begin this whole process, but the entity that you assume is one who itself needs a creator. So it's viciously circular. It's illogical. There's no infinite regress, even among atheists. This started, by the way, not recently, but as I said, back in ancient Greek philosophy. They realized this. They were searching all over the place for something they called the RK. We get words like uh, architecture, but more, maybe more informatively, we get stuff like uh, archbishop, archdiocese, uh, archangel. Those are all part of this RK uh, terminology. It means the chief thing, right? They were searching for the first thing, the first uncreated thing. Aristotle called it his unmoved mover. Point being, even way back prior to Socrates, they understood that something has to have always existed. Something. Now the early Greek philosophers, the, the, the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they all posited that they all posited that this something was the universe, but there was another force that has always also existed that started things into motion. So, I'll give you an example. I'm going to take this chair, I'm going to put it right here. Now, assuming nothing changes with gravity, there's no earthquakes, how long is it going to take? this chair to move from here to the back of the room. Never move. Right. Well, oh, well, hold on. So how, now how long do you think it'll take? It's a silly question, right? Because inanimate objects do not have the power of self-motion. There are two types of causes. Agent causation and event causation. Imagine that I've got a, you've seen it before, there's a large pattern of dominoes spread across a table and you hit the first one and it knocks over the second one and then that one knocks over the next one, right? Inertia, gravity, mass, they'll take care of all the ones following, but the first one requires an agent. Something has to desire to move. 
And what these ancient philosophers were trying to figure out is, who moved? And they looked at the universe as if the universe had always existed. And this has been the opinion of most thinking persons for the last 2,500 years. Most thinking persons have understood that something had to exist, and they've assumed that that thing that has always existed was the universe itself. However, in the aftermath of Einstein's general theory of relativity, everything changed. Because in that theory, Einstein evinced, among other things, a universe which is expanding. He actually didn't like the conclusion. He preferred a steady-state universe because there are some pretty significant metaphysical ramifications to an expanding universe. Metaphysical meaning God. If the universe is expanding and you roll back the cosmic clock, eventually it contracts to the point where the universe doesn't exist. There was a beginning. Einstein's theory proved that there's a beginning of matter, energy, time, and space. There was a point prior to the existence of the universe where the universe did not exist. This is huge. Now, Einstein's general theory of relativity is, is basically a, a, theory to, a theory on cosmic gravity, and there's a whole lot of ramifications to it, most of which have, have made it into our sci-fi TV shows and stuff, and it's interesting to watch. But what we need to know about it is that it shows, it proves necessarily that the universe is expanding. And if it's expanding, then even just moments ago it was less expansive than it is now. And if you roll back the cosmic clock far enough, you get to a point prior to the existence of the universe. Prior to the existence of matter, energy, time, and space. Prior to the existence of our natural order. This is really important. Einstein's theory of relativity, what we're talking about here is the Big Bang. And for a long time, those, the, the Christians I was talking about before who just wanted the Bible, they fought hard against the Big Bang. So I, I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. God said in the beginning, let there be light. Bam! Right. And there was light. You know, there are only two ways to explain the existence of any entity we talked about before. The entity in question has to be created by something else, or it has to have always existed. But now we know that the universe has not always existed. So something has to be an antecedent cause for the universe. This, by the way, is not controversial. What I'm about to show you is a bunch of quotes from people who are not Christians who are actually in this field, who are doing the work. And this is what they have to say. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. This is Stephen Hawking in The Nature of Science and Time. Stephen Hawking did the field equations for Einstein's theory of relativity. Stephen Hawking is an atheist. Stephen Hawking, if you don't know, he's a brilliant physicist and he's a paraplegic, and he's, he's got, I think it's a, an advanced case of Parkinson's, and he's stuck in a wheelchair, and he communicates and he writes uh, through a sophisticated computer system where he can just use his eyes to actually determine which letters he wants to type, and then uh, if he's speaking to you, that, because he can't speak, that computer then 
takes the type and turns it into voice so that you can hear what he's saying. It's a brilliant man in a really horrible situation. A movie just came out last year of him. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I'm interested to see it. He's not a believer. And in fact, he says something in a book that he came out with last year, a year before last, called The Grand Design. Given enough time, and because of gravity, it's on page five, and because of gravity, this is going to sound familiar to you, a universe can and will create itself. And this guy's really smart. But evidently, he's a really bad philosopher. And in fact, what he says, I think it's on page seven, is so we can now say that philosophy is surely dead. So the philosophy, like how we get to a God, that's what he's saying, it's surely dead. And then he spends the rest of the entire book giving you philosophical arguments as to why his scientific ideas are correct. You can't get away from philosophy, by the way. And this is a brilliant man, but he says that given enough time and because of gravity, the universe can and will create itself. In order to create itself, the universe would have to exist. So there's problem number one. And by the way, it's not just me saying this. A guy named John Lennox, who's a professor at Oxford, he has, I think, now four PhDs. One of them's in physics, one of them's in math. I think another one's in philosophy. Brilliant man. He came out and just assailed him. This is ridiculous. And he, he also said that this book was obviously never proofed even by someone with an undergrad degree in philosophy. Because had they, it would have never been published. The idea that it has to create itself obviously violates the law of non-contradiction. We've already talked about this. But he says that the cause is time and gravity. And what we just learned is, prior to the universe, there was no matter, there was no energy, there was no time, and there was no space. So there is no time. So there, there's no such thing as time by which the universe might create itself. Worse yet. He says because of gravity. Gravity is a concept that we use to explain the interaction of matter. What we're trying to explain is the existence of that matter, the universe. This formally begs the question. He's saying, because of gravity, the universe will create itself. Well, we have to have the universe before we have gravity. It's back to the chicken and the egg, right? In fact, the, the formula for gravity, for the force of gravity, this is Newton. You know, this is not like new. This is Isaac Newton. It's, it's like force equals the gravitational constant times mass one times mass two over the distance between the two masses. Now what that means is mass one and mass two have to be there for gravity to be in effect. Mass one is just this, this is mass. You don't have gravity without mass. If, if, if the universe is not here, there is no gravity, so gravity can't be used to explain the universe. So it's just ridiculous, but he puts out a 500 page book to prove his point. And here he is right here saying that we know even time itself, this is the same guy who said given enough time, even time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Okay. How am I doing? You guys, are, are we still okay? Anybody got questions over the stuff we've already covered? Has anybody lost? Do you think Hawking said that just based on his uh, reputation, that he could just say anything? And, or do you think he actually believed it? Believe this? No, about the universe will recreate itself. 
I think he's led inexorably to that statement by his worldview. Now, I don't know Stephen Hawking's. I've never read a biography on him, and I've not even seen this book, I mean, this movie that's come out yet. But as I said when we first started this, generally of this panoply of intellectual arguments is a structure that one builds to avoid the emotional or moral issues that they're dealing with. So imagine that you're a bright young student at Oxford and you get your whole future ahead of you and you just met this woman and you're about to get married and then you get hit with Parkinson's disease that you know is going to be completely debilitated and your whole life that you had planned is irreparably changed and harmed. I mean, who wants to live in a wheelchair? Now, who wants to believe that there's a God in charge of the universe that would allow such a thing? I mean, that's just my guess. Problem of evil is huge for most people. There, there are three problems that I come across regularly uh, when I'm discussing this with atheists. It's, what of those who've never heard? What about the innocent native in Africa who's never heard Jesus Christ? Um, what about the problem of evil? How do you explain evil if your God is good and powerful? And what kind of a good God would send people to hell? Those are the three questions, which are easily answered, but they're, they're difficult questions emotionally. <laughs> not theologically, not intellectually, but emotionally, they're painful. I'm telling you, I've had a run. This past three years has been brutal for me. Just brutal. One thing after another after another. I'd pray for something fervently. I'd gather other people together in prayer for this specific thing and then it wouldn't happen. And it needed to happen. And the consequences of it not happening uh, were significant. And that tests your faith. I'm glad I, I know that God exists because that would test my faith. To constantly face this what seems to be unanswered prayer, the bronze sky. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking and I mean to imagine my daughter dying or me winding up as a paraplegic with my whole future ahead of me I can imagine it might lead me to just come to an emotional decision that God does not exist and then I have to rationalize that because I'm a brilliant physicist that'd be my guess Uh, remember none of these people are Christians I think Hawkins would, would call himself an atheist. Most of them, which by the way is a dumb position to take. And I'm not saying that because atheists are dumb, because generally speaking, the ones that I speak to are a whole lot smarter than most of the Christians I speak to on the college campus. It's just a dumb position. You're making an affirmative claim that there is no God, as if you could prove there is no God. I mean, can you prove that there's no leprechaun in my pocket right now? And you come over here and you look, and, and no, I don't see one. Well, no, he's invisible. How do you prove that there's no leprechaun in my pocket? You're trying to prove a universal negative. It's impossible. Atheism is a, is a dumb idea. Agnosticism is this position that says, well, we, we just don't know and we don't have enough knowledge and we can't know. Robert Jastrow would call himself an agnostic. And, and I wish I had their bona fides because I'd tell you these guys are all the top scholars. I just have the wrong hand out here. Um, For the scientist who has lived his faith by the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and he pulls himself over the final rock, and he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He's a physicist. This is him again. Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods 
that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there were, that there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. This is Alexander Vilenkin. He is, uh, as far as research goes today, one of the one of the most prominent astrophysicists and cosmologists in the world. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind, it's important, hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Man's an atheist. But he's talking about hiding behind and escaping the conclusions that they're forced to by logic, reason, and math, that there is a cosmic beginning, that there is a supernatural force, and that that is now a scientifically proven fact. Okay, I'm going to play for you now William Dembski. William Dembski is a man of incredible intelligence. I don't know how many degrees he has, but he speaks like six languages. That's, and uh, that's David Berlinski. What did I say? William Dembski. Oh, William Dembski, also a very smart guy. But yes, David Berlinski is who I'm meaning to talk about. As one who is uh, that smart, sometimes he has trouble speaking to people like you know us, who are probably not at his level. When he speaks, he speaks really monotone. He makes his arguments in a very erudite fashion. And I'm going to beg you. To, to stay with him and listen to what he's saying because it's really important. It deals specifically with, with what these men have been saying about the theory of general relativity and where it inexorably leads us. And then he talks a bit about Einstein as well. I want to go ahead and just preface it by saying this so you'll understand what he means. Remember I showed you that the universe was expanding? Well, that expansion is quantified by something called the cosmological constant. Now, the cosmological constant, if I, Ron, I know you would be the guy that would get this. Um, if I told you, hey, take this tube of six and cut it at two foot, you'd go, okay, I got it. Now, if I tell you to cut it at 2.1745986 foot, you'd be like, my tape measure doesn't have that, right? You're just like, I'm gonna have to get a different tool because it's a much more accurate measurement that I require. The, the cosmological constant is now proven accurate to one part in 100 million billion 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 billion. I don't even know what to do with a number like that, but there's, it, it becomes unreasonable at the extreme to suggest that this happened by accident. If the cosmological constant changes from that speed of expansion, either by getting faster or slower, we all die, the universe implodes. The cosmological constant has to be exactly what it is for life to exist in this universe. Not only that, but it has to work in, I mentioned earlier the formula for the force of gravity, it has to work in conjunction with the gravitational constant. And it has to work in conjunction with the strong nuclear force and the speed of light and all the other fundamental constants. They all have to work hand in glove 
perfect or the universe implodes. This is called the fine-tuning of the universe. It's amazing. Remember I told you that Einstein wanted a steady-state universe, but his math proved that the universe was expanding. And he didn't like that because if it was expanding, then he has to posit, he knows it has a beginning, and he has to posit a beginner. And he was a pantheist. He believed that God existed, but he believed that God was part of the universe. And so he didn't like this idea that God had to create the universe. So he comes up with the cosmological constant, which at this time was a math trick he used to bring the universe back to a steady state. He divided by zero, which almost any kindergartner can tell you you can't do. Certainly Albert Einstein knew he couldn't do it. He later said that this was the greatest blunder of his career. Edwin Hubble, who, you know, you heard of the Hubble telescope, he calls Einstein out to show him the evidence from the sky. He noticed something that's called a red light shift, which proves that the universe is expanding. And then Albert Einstein famously said, I now see the necessity of an expanding universe. And so with that, here's David Berlinski. Look at Big Bang cosmology, for example. Uh, until 1930, 1940, 1950, Einstein's view was the dominant view, the thing, the universe. It's been there from everlasting. It will be there till everlasting. It's just hanging there in space. It was there for all time. It will be there for all time. And there is no further question that we need to ask about its creation. And the astonishing, astonishing fact that the universe seems to be finite in temporal extent. It popped into existence 14 or 15 billion years ago. All of a sudden, uh, made many uh, sympathetic observers say, oh, wait a second, I've heard that before. And there's something resonant in that view in the beginning. It's not clear. I, I remember it from Sunday school in the beginning. Something about created that happened. Well, you know, isn't that pretty close to what the Big Bang guys are saying? Yeah, it is pretty close. It is astonishingly close. An honest and sympathetic physicist said so. And for a long time, Einstein resisted this view. Till the end of his life, in fact, he found the Big Bang hypothesis personally repugnant. Uh, I have that on the authority of his friends. But many other physicists who had thought that all theological questions, especially questions about a creator, had been once and forever settled, were forced to confront a body of observational and theoretical evidence that made them wobble, as it should have. It should make every thinking person wobble, wobble. I put that in there for the kids. <laughs> Who knew David Berlinski was so hip? So did you get what he was saying? I know it's probably hard to hear, but he's saying that the evidence has, has led honest physicists and cosmologists to the necessary conclusion that what Genesis said is very similar to what we see when we're doing our work in physics and in cosmology and in calculus. And he's saying that's significant and it ought to cause anyone in those fields to wobble. Because if we have an entity that has been created and that entity is the universe, we necessarily need a creator. Everything that's been created has a creator. Now, I often get pushback here, and it's what you offered up, uh, especially when I'm teaching high school kids. They'll say, yeah, well, who created God? And I go, you're asking the wrong question. If you're asking who created God, 
then you have to ask yourself who created the creator of God and who created the creator of the creator of God and on and on and on. It's an infinite regress. All of the thinking world is understood since the very beginning, at least of Western thought and certainly Judaic thought, that there had to be something which has always existed. It's necessary. If you have an infinite regress, an infinite series of events, going backwards in time, you never start because it never stops. That infinite series of events is infinite. It just keeps going on forever, so it never actually starts. If it never starts, you can never get here. So there can't be an infinite regress. What you have to have is something that has always existed. Now, this pre-existent cause for the universe, thing one... And just to make the point, this isn't a problem just for theists. Even if you're an atheist, you have to assume that the universe has been around forever. You can't not have something that always was there. So this isn't just a theistic problem. Well, I I think it's the answer to... I I wouldn't say it's even a theistic problem. It's a theistic answer. But I think what you're saying is right. These people I'm talking to want to push back because they want to say that you know something had to create God. Richard Dawkins came out with a book called The God Delusion. It was it's the it's probably the worst philosophical work I've ever read in my entire life. And he's asking that question. Okay, well, who created God? And he uses an, an evolutionary context to try to show that God could not be created. No one's saying that God has been created. Everybody has to assume that something has always existed, regardless of which side of the theism fence you're on. Whether you believe in Christianity, whether you believe in Judaism, atheism, whatever you believe, something has always existed. Now, what we need to know is, does that something have the power to create the universe? Can it move? Inanimate objects can't move. Gravity can't explain the existence of the matter, because you have to have the matter to have the gravity. And even if you had the matter... And gravity has existed without interruption in infinity past, then nothing would ever move. I mean, assuming no uh, earthquakes, no significant changes in the world, right? That chair would have stayed here forever because gravity is constant. That's why we call it the law of gravity because it always does the same thing. So even if we had the universe and we had gravity, you still don't get what we have now which is why Aristotle was looking for the unmoved mover. There has to be something that starts everything into motion. So if the creator existed prior to the universe, then he's not dependent on the universe because the universe doesn't exist, right? He's also not part of the universe because he exists alone prior to the universe. And if the creator is not part of or dependent on the universe, then he's not dependent on the natural order in the universe or the laws that govern that order. So he's not dependent on matter, energy, time, and space or the laws of physics or anything like that. If he created them, he's sovereign over them and he's transcendent over all of those things. Now these are not Christian arguments. Understand, this is a necessary philosophical conclusion from the scientific evidence and some basic philosophical logical arguments. God is not, whatever the creator is at this point, we haven't shown who that is, whatever the creator is, is not part of or dependent on the universe, therefore not part of or dependent on the natural order. If he is not part of or dependent on the natural order, the cause of the universe is then necessarily supernatural. It's not part of the natural order. 
the cause of the universe is outside of nature. The cause of the universe is necessarily then supernatural. A lot of times in conversations, and if you have smart young people that are going to college, you're going to get this right back at you. They go, yeah, well, you give science enough time, and science will figure it out. We did, once, once science figured out how thunder was caused, we didn't need to posit that God was angry anymore. You know, it's kind of the idea. Here's the problem. Science is a tool used to measure events, cause, and effect inside the natural order. Science doesn't work outside the natural order. What we're talking about is the cause of the natural order. Science is stuck in a box. Science can never do anything but work its way back to the very beginning, which we now call the Big Bang. And when you talk to scientists who come to the conclusions that we've shown here, you ask them, okay, but what happened before the Big Bang? And what they will say is, we don't know. We're never going to know. So they're willing to follow their scientific methodology back to where it requires a cause, but they're not willing to go beyond that because science itself can't go there. And what a lot of people have done, this guy named, um, I forget his first name, his last name is Gould. He's actually a really brilliant atheist. Something Jay Gould. Anyway. Stephen. Stephen Jay Gould. Yes. He came up with this idea called the non-overlapping spheres of magisterium, which means we have science over here, and this is how we learn things in the world. And then we can have philosophers over here who sit around and waste their days thinking about ridiculous statements like, I think, therefore I am. And then we have religion over here where crazy people go around with these weird superstitions. And we can all exist in harmony as long as none of these spheres overlap. And so that's how they can go all the way back to the beginning and then say we don't need to go any farther than that. But I think what we all ought to be about is truth. And truth doesn't exist in compartments. If Augustine was right, and I believe he was, that all truth is God's truth, we gather all the disciplines we can to make sense out of reality. Theism, which is all we've done so far, and we're not even finished with this, but we're close. Theism makes the best sense out of reality. We prove that there is a creator and that he could not be part of or dependent on that universe and is therefore supernatural. Thus, by logic, science, and reason alone, we are forced inexorably to the conclusion that there is a supernatural creator of the universe. But he's also personal. So up until now, we could say it. But in order to create, you have to have a mind, and you have to have a will to act on that which the mind plans. In order to decide to push that first domino over, you have to decide to push that first domino over, and then you have to move. That's an agent. That's a person. So what we have is not just a supernatural creator, but we have a personal creator. The Big Bang Theory shows us that at the beginning, there was nothing, and then out of nothing came everything. You have two choices here. Either nothing created everything, or there is a creator that created. But not only is he supernatural and personal, he has to be intelligent. We are talking earlier about the fundamental constants, the very delicate balance of these laws of gravity, speed of light, strong nuclear force, how they all have to work together. 
you know, we're just now starting to get a, a handle on this. And what we're realizing is this is like nth level physics just to try to figure out what God has done. So at least by human standards, whoever created this universe is quite brilliant. Greg Kokel, a man I mentioned earlier, said this. God sets the constants and fine-tunes the beginning conditions. The constants are those things I've talked about before. The cosmological constant, the gravitational constant, the speed of light. Those are all constants. They have to be there. They have to function perfectly. God sets the constants and fine-tunes the beginning conditions of the Big Bang in such a way that cosmic history unfolds. And it unfolds according to a very precise and definite pattern based on the laws of physics and the initial conditions in order to get a very specific state of affairs down the line. Dominoes falling. And he sets it all in motion. Now, I don't mean that God doesn't interact in the universe. I believe that, we, I talked earlier about he might send the Assyrians against Israel. Uh, he might bring Israel out of Egypt. He also, I think, acts constantly in accordance with our prayers. <laughs> Lately, he's obviously had a different plan than I had, and I really wish he'd give me a schedule. But I know I've seen much answered prayer in my life. So I'm not suggesting that God just set it in motion and walked away. That's deism. Last thing, powerful. Given the enormity of the universe, at least from a human perspective, whoever created this universe is extremely powerful. So supernatural. This is simply by the laws of reason. We have a creator that must be supernatural, personal, intelligent, powerful. I haven't used any Christian arguments. I've referenced a couple of times the Bible, but generally speaking, I'm not using the Bible at all. So when you're speaking to people who... By the way, that's something else. In apologetics, you're going to be speaking to one of two kinds of people. You're going to be speaking to people who do not believe in God or people who do believe in God. If you're speaking to those who do not believe in God, you don't need to talk about what the Bible says. Now, I'm not taking anything away from what Isaiah says when he says, my word will not return void. There are times to insert scripture. But I can tell you that if you're speaking to them in Mandarin Chinese and they don't speak Mandarin Chinese, they're not going to have any clue what you're talking about. We talk a lot here at this church about just giving your testimony. And I'm not in any way creating a dichotomy like either apologetics or or, or your testimony. Because sometimes your testimony is the most powerful thing you can share. But most people in this culture today, most people, especially the younger generation, your testimony is white noise. You want to talk to this 20-year-old and you're saying, look, I know that God is real. He's changed my life. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I like to quote one of my favorite 20th century philosophers. This man man was named David Lee Roth. Maybe some of you heard of him. And he says, some go to women, some go to Jesus, and I'm absolutely certain both's all right. But it takes me at least halfway through the label for I can even make it through the night. He's saying, I got my truth, you got your truth, and they got their truth. You got Christianity, you got women, they make you happy. I got a bottle of Jack Daniels and that'll get me through the night. That's his point. And that's the point of most people in this culture today. Your testimony is white noise until you crack their worldview. Greg Coco, who I mentioned before, he uses the term, and I love it. It's a great term. Put a stone in their shoe. So that every time they take a step, it bothers them. I can't get over what that told me. That's your main job as an apologist. It's to 
where you go, you introduce doubt in a worldview that is contrary to the existence of God. So I said you, you're going to speak to two different groups. You're going to speak to a group that believes there is no God, and you use this argument for that group. The other group would believe that there is a God, and I've had a lot of people going through this argument concede that there must be some sort of creator. But they're not willing to concede that that creator is the creator of Christianity. So that's a whole different group of people. And it's variegated. So you have people who are pantheists. You have Jews uh, who are uh, Orthodox Jews in Judaism. You have uh, Muslims. Right now there's a class going on about Islam. And that's going to be the next lesson. But the main thing is to focus on who you're talking to and what the issue is that needs to be addressed. If you're talking to if you're talking to a Muslim, you obviously don't need to prove that, that God exists, right? So what you need to do directly with the Muslim is go straight to what he believes by asking questions. And you're going to find one of two things. My, my experience with Muslims has taught me two things. Either the person is a secular Muslim, just like most of the people running around in America that claim to be Christians, or they're a person devoted to the Quran. So what we deal with in the next lecture is how you deal with those specific worldviews based on their truth claims. So if, if their claim to truth in Islam is the Quran, then you need to know something of the Quran. You don't have to be a Quranic expert. You don't have to be Paul Weaver down there. You just need to know something of the Quran to be able to juxtapose it or compare it to what the Bible says because of what it says about what the Bible says.